On this week's On the Media, we explore best practices for journalists interviewing believers of the big lie. Pay attention to the language the right uses. Pay attention to what's baked into it. You can't let them use language to make it seem like, well, actually, you know, maybe some of these people had a point. They didn't have a point. I've turned down invitations to be on TV with Trump big lie propagators. If there's not a common basis of truth and good faith that one is acting on, how can you even have a debate? Wasn't Hugh's whole thing that Trump would be reinstated as president? He's never left. There's no doubt in my mind, 150,000%. At this point, I would be okay with a revote. Really? Yeah. People thinking that politics is a debate class that only deals with what is true has actually stopped people from seeing the spread of certain political movements in the country over the last five to ten years. It's all coming up after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Let's start with a painfully obvious observation that our politics now founders in a sea of lies, with an emphasis on an especially heinous whopper. This is a plan. This is, this is maybe the plan Joe Biden was talking about. He's got the best voter fraud plan in the, in the world. Lucky we caught it. This is very hard to find, prove, and obtain relief on after the fact because so many of the ballots get commingled. The senators who are refusing to stand up for a free, fair, uh, and impartial election are also bowing to the demands of the radical left and, of course, the business establishment. Uh, Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, the first courageous Republican senator to announce his objection to the electoral college vote. There was fraud. Nobody disputes that, by the way. There needs to be an investigation as to how widespread this fraud was, and there needs to be change. We know we've got the evidence. Stop letting people tell you that we don't have the evidence, because we do. And this is only going to continue. This fraud will continue, and America will be doomed. If life were fair, the big lie that Donald J. Trump won his second run would have wilted long ago under the blazing light of evidence to the contrary. Over 50 failed lawsuits, two dismissed Supreme Court cases, multiple recounts in three different states, etc., etc., and so on. But according to the Washington Post's latest polling from December, 71% of Republicans, 30-plus percent of the electorate, doubt Joe Biden was legitimately elected. When you have video footage of people taking bags of ballots and showing that they are for Donald Trump and lighting them on fire. I helped write a fact check on CNN on on that particular video. The election officials said that video has been going around for a few days. Uh, They are printout ballots. They're not real ballots. So you use the information of the election officials. Somebody like me comes along, tries to research it, tries to fact check it and then I fact check it, you'll come back and say, well, the election officials would say that. But wouldn't they though? That's the thing though, question everything, right? What is to be done? 
Here, journalists seem to have a meager supply of options. Some, like NPR's host Steve Inskeep earlier this month, returned to the source, the former president. Look at Pennsylvania. Look at Philadelphia. Is it true that there were far more votes than there were voters? It is not true Gee, that there were far. Tough thing it, to, it is not a pretty true. tough problem. It is not true that there were far more votes than voters. There was an early count. I've noticed you've talked about this in rallies, and you've said reportedly this is true. I think even you know that that was an early report that was corrected later. Well, you take a look at it. You take a look at Detroit. In fact, they even had a hard time getting people to sign off on it because it was so out of balance. They called it out of balance. So you take a look at it. You know the real truth, Steve. And Trump hung up satisfying listeners who savor a good cut and run. But was that payoff worth the nearly seven minutes of lies that preceded it? Hard to say. Others in the media bypass the GOP's anointed king in favor of its bishops and rooks. But often in those matches, the master's moves are still played, as when ABC's George Stephanopoulos interviewed Rand Paul on voter fraud. You're saying there was no fraud and it's all been investigated. That's just not true. It's not what I said, sir. I said the Department of Justice found no evidence. Let me finish my point. You said something that was not true. You say we're all liars. You're just simply saying we're all liars. And I said it was a lie that the election was stolen. Premise that you're right and we're wrong. Well, let, no. Well, let's let's talk about the specific. The thing about the power of lies is that they poison any real chance of conversation, whether with political elites or regular voters. So after those doing battle with the big lie struggle or shout or sigh, it may seem the only response left is to snicker which makes the battle for democracy, which this is, harder to win because it requires stalwarts across the political spectrum. But it can be kind of funny. Here's The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper. Are you a Q supporter? Certainly. Wasn't Q's whole thing that Trump would be reinstated as president? He's never left. There's no doubt in my mind, 150,000%. That he's still president of the United States? Really? Does he still hold the powers of the presidency? Well, he's been flying around the world on Air Force One. It says something. I thought Joe Biden's technically on Air Force One. No. So they're they're faking it? Yeah, it's it's not even a presidency. Who is running the government right now? President Trump. He's running the government. And the military. And he's running the military. So we should blame him for what happened in Afghanistan. No. But it's still his fault. It's the deluded uncle at the holiday dinner treatment. Maybe good for a laugh, but stultifying, moving us no closer toward a better republic. And so this hour, we consider our moves. Is this a left-right thing? Only if you think that representative government is. It's not about income inequality or racial justice, not this week anyway. It's kind of a show for journalists, but also news consumers who are engaged by the question of how to tell the truth so people believe it, if that's even possible. And we start with Matthew Sitman. He used to be a conservative Catholic. Now he's a leftist one, though he's no less interested in right-wing thought. On their podcast, cheekily named Know Your Enemy, Sitman and his co-host Sam Adler-Bell venture into the heart of the modern conservative movement that gave rise to Trump. A recent episode featured Nate Hockman, a writer for National Review and a rising star in the intellectual right. Matthew, welcome back to the show. I'm really excited to be talking to you. <laughs> Let's talk about Know Your Enemy. It's a title that is germane to this whole hour, actually. Uh-huh. You mean it mostly tongue-in-cheek, but tell me how you lit upon that name. We get questions about the title all the time. And one of the reasons we lit on the name Know Your Enemy is because on the right, in the past few years, there's been a bit of a resurgence of interest in the Nazi jurist and philosopher Carl Schmitt. Mm-hmm. And one of his big ideas was that politics is about friends and enemies, that that was the big distinction in politics. And I always like to say, too, that I'm a Christian, and so, you know, I'm obliged to love my enemies. And I don't know how you can do that if you don't know them. <laughs> <laughs> so the podcast, which you co-host with Sam Adler-Bell, is devoted to interrogating the intellectual framework of conservatism, often by discussing its luminaries, essays and books, but also by interviewing the enemies themselves. Your latest guest, Nate Hockman, is not 
exactly your average MAGA kid, right? That's probably true. He's well-spoken and I think at least has some complicated relationship to you know, some of the ideas percolating on the right right now. But on the other hand, he was featured in an essay Sam Adler Bell wrote for the New Republic as a representative member of the young radical right. So Nate is the guest we've had on that is most immersed in the contemporary conservative movement in the United States, the person most affiliated and involved with their institutions and organizations, publications. Hockman said that he was lukewarm on Trump the man, that he's a moronic boomer who tapped into something by accident, but he tapped into something. Yes. Something about this interview that stood out to me was its tone. Uh You're clearly friendly with this guy. You were determined to avoid a shouting match, right? How do you think the conversation went? We didn't want it to really turn into a debate per se because we just didn't think anyone's mind would be changed. We weren't going to change Nate's mind. He wasn't going to change ours. And so the goal was more clarifying the precise nature of our disagreements. To be honest, I thought I could have been harder on him. I wish I would have bore down a little more on Nate and pressed him on exactly what he meant by certain phrases and lines he used. Right. Particularly, you said, when he resorted to using euphemisms. Can you give some examples? Sure. There was a moment where he mentioned that he had done some reporting from Portland during the Black Lives Matter protests. My, for lack of a better word, sort of radicalization moment was watching in Portland, being there reporting on it, watching people burn down the country that I loved and watching the end of the conservative movement that I'd associated with myself with really not having much to say about it. Hmm. Um, that to me, it felt like we needed something different. That's a line where I would have you know, in real time, wished I would have stopped him and said, well, what do you mean? You know, how prevalent were riots and looting? How does that contrast with the many, many peaceful protests and the murder of George Floyd that we all saw? You know, the murders that we know take place. Those are real problems. And simply pointing to the behavior of certain protesters doesn't really settle any of that. One moment that caught my ear in the Hockman interview was when you recall the moment as a young conservative and a Christian, when you realized that racism was integral to the origins of the modern conservative movement. Even in the 1950s, you know, post-war America, as the rumblings of the civil rights movement gained, there were like still lynchings in the South. That was not something I learned in my public high school. And it really shook me. As I studied the right, I did, I was genuinely convinced that racial backlash played more of a role in the rise of the conservative movement than the kind of mythological version of its history I had been given as a young conservative. Of course, racial backlash played a a role in various right-wing politics, particularly, you know, with debates over Jim Crow, segregation, busing, like all of these things. I, I think it's also more complicated. The question of busing, for example, right? Like wealthy white liberals who sent their kids to private schools, forcing working class whites to all of a sudden reorient their entire lives uh, around sending their kids to a school that was way crappier than it was before with people that they weren't neighbors with, right? If we agree in the abstract that racial equality, racial justice is a noble and honorable goal worth pursuing, there are ways to sort of give Black people equal opportunity, for example, I think that don't require laying waste to other communities. Laying waste to communities, crappier schools. This is pretty loaded language. Uh And there are also his assertions about crappier schools. Studies have shown that students actually benefit from attending racially diverse Uh schools, right? Yes. And to the point of euphemism, you know, there's the amazing quote from Lee Atwater, the Republican strategist behind the Willie Horton Mm -hmm. ad. You you handle the race. Right. And he said, you know, back in the day, you might have been able to say the N-word, the N-word, the N-word. But now, so you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff, and you get it so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things. You're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than white. My experience interviewing Nate, it was a reminder to pay attention to the language the right uses to pay attention to what's baked into it, the assumptions that are there. And sometimes it's easy to gloss over them because, you know, this is the language of American politics, too, in a lot of ways. I wonder, do believers in the big lie 
ever make your guest list? No. We don't have on many conservatives. We pick our spots. Mm -hmm. But I would say that is a red line for me. Mm -hmm. And that was one case where I actually thought I did press Nate uh, toward the end of the conversation. I pressed him on the big lie. And he tried to use language that, well, you know, I I don't think – uh, Trump actually had a landslide election stolen from him. But, you know, it was confusing after the election. Mm. Uh, all those mail-in mm. ballots, people were uncertain. We were in limbo. And that's where you just have to say something like, well, I don't know what you mean because everyone who paid any attention at all knew it would take a few weeks to count all the ballots because of the pandemic and all the, the mail-in ballots, right? Right. And Nate mm-hmm. is from Oregon where they've had mail-in voting since before he was born. <laughs> you know, we know it's not simply a game people can manipulate to steal elections. We know that. Mm-hmm. And we knew that after the 2020 election. We know there's all the audits that have been done. None of the audits have turned up anything. None of the examinations of the ballots have turned up anything. There's no question in any fair-minded person's mind about Trump losing the election. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's, you can't let them use language like confusion right. or – uncertainty to make it seem like, well, actually, maybe some of these people had a point. They didn't have a point. How important do you think it was that you dwelled in these circles during a formative time in your life? I mean, when you were 23, Nate's age, a few years before, a few years after, before you left, does that make a huge difference? Well, you know, I think part of, to to continue with the example of Nate, I think because I was a young conservative at his age, maybe I hold out some hope for him. <laughs> you know, that if I keep talking to him over time, maybe I'll wear him down or win some arguments with him. But that's the kind of thing you can't compress into a single podcast episode. You also talked about the fact that sentiment seems to prevail more on the right, that views are shaped by a sense that something doesn't feel right. You know, what Colbert would have called truthiness, Uh making decisions with their guts. How does that figure into these conversations, if at all? When we talk about euphemism and trying to unpack what's in language, I do think sometimes you just get down to something like that base revulsion, something almost pre-rational. You can give it rational reasons, but it's disgust or kind of recoiling against the other. And you know, one of my favorite lines that we use on the show all the time is that it's the line from Frank Wilhoit that the essence of conservatism is that they believe that the law exists to protect some without binding them, but binding others without protecting them. And that's going to change over time. It's like Corey Robbins' thesis in The Reactionary Mind that the right is about the defense of hierarchy. And as you move through history in any particular moment, in any particular political situation, you know, that's going to shift. When you talk about disgust, you mean like at one point it was unbreachable disgust about, say, the gay lifestyle. And now that same feeling in the far right is directed towards trans people? Yes. Or am I yes. off Yes, no, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. The issues will change over time. But often what connects them is that just kind of instinctive revulsion against the leveling of hierarchies and, and social change. And I think the example of gay marriage and gay rights and now trans rights is a great example. And you saw some of Nate's language was he used the term transgenderism, which I don't think is mm-hmm. appropriate. And it was just kind of like, well, this blurring of lines, as he said, between men and women. What, you're like, well, but, but what actually was the concrete problem that he was discussing? We never really got there. And it was a, a sort of vaguer, again, more euphemistic language that just seemed at the end of the day to be just this. I don't like this. I don't like where this is going. Do you wish you'd challenged that as well? Yes. Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. It's always a pleasure. Matthew Sitman is associate editor of Commonweal and co-host of the Know Your Enemy podcast. Coming up, is there more to be gained by talking to political elites or stop the steal voters? This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. 
Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Bill Kristol has been one of the most ubiquitous conservative commentators of the past two decades. The magazine he founded and edited, The Weekly Standard, was often described as the neocon Bible. But as Trump ascended, Kristol found himself marginalized, then ostracized by the increasingly Trumpist GOP. After clashing with the magazine's owner, he left the Weekly Standard, which was shuttered two years later, and became editor-at-large of the center-right website The Bulwark. We wondered if, as a man of the right who soundly rejects the big lie, he had any advice about how to talk to those who espouse it. First, I asked where he sat on the political spectrum nowadays. <laughs> you know, I've been using for two, three years now Pete Buttigieg's line from the 2019-2020 presidential campaign. Uh, Buttigieg said he wanted to appeal to Democrats, progressives, moderates, and even Republicans. And then I think he hesitated and said, well, maybe future former Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> which is a good way of evading the question of exactly what I am right now. Uh, I haven't voted Republican in a few years because I think the party really is now not a reliably Democratic small-D party and it has tolerated and enabled a kind of authoritarianism, nativism, and other things that I just find unacceptable. As a journalist who once maintained the same political affiliation, how do you approach a Republican politician who pushes the big lie. I've met rather few Republican politicians, elected officials in Congress, let's say, who really believe the big lie, even the ones who sit and tolerate it, even some of the ones who actually do more than tolerate it, but promote it. So among elites, I think we have a cynical and opportunistic willingness to go along with something that Donald Trump is pushing, and those elites don't want to see the conservative movement or the Republican Party split between Trump and those who tell the truth. If they normalize the big lie, then it doesn't matter what they feel in their hearts, does it? It's not quite as bad, obviously, as cheering it on or encouraging it or inciting it. I mean, we have to have some distinctions, I suppose. No, we don't. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, a, that's maybe we don't. No, you're not going to call out everyone on your side of the aisle politically if they say something a little foolish, a little exaggerated, a little demagogic. That's sort of one set of things. But that's if the movement on the whole is healthy, cares about the truth, is law-abiding, and so forth. If the movement as a whole now gets taken over, though, by an authoritarian and truth-denying personality, yes, I think one has much more of an obligation to actually speak up against it. And at that point, being quiet is just being complicit. Right. I think people blame Trump, which is true. People worry about the base and, and blame the base for believing all this dangerous nonsense. They let off too easily the elected officials who have enabled this to go to the extent it's gone, and especially for me, the conservative elites who themselves have come up with fancy rationalizations for this. So I have friends who are still conservatives, academics, journalists, opinion leaders, and so forth. They're swimming in a world of the Wall Street Journal editorial page and Nashua View. They don't quite believe the craziest stuff on Fox News, but they believe the complicated rationalizations in the Wall Street Journal, which, A, make you think, well, maybe there's something there. It's not quite as bad as, you know, as Trump says, but, you know, there were real problems, Bill, and the left is doing the same thing, and they would do it in a minute. And the elites have a lot to explain, in my view, for letting it get to the point they've gotten to. 
Many journalists, including the new MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan, say that they simply won't give a platform to people who spread that misinformation, even if it means ignoring the views of like a quarter of the country. What do you think about that? I'm really of two minds. I'm just uncertain. I've turned down invitations to be on TV with Trump big lie propagators and even some of the rationalizers, I would say. I just don't want to do it. I just feel like if there's not a common basis of truth and good faith that one is acting on, how can you even have a debate? I suspect if I had a TV show, I'd be, on the one hand, think it's X percent of the country, who knows, 50, 40, 30 percent of the country. People need to see what they think. They need to be confronted. And on the other hand, you could also say that having them on gives them too much credibility. So I think it's a tough moment for journalists, for the media, and for sort of uh, mainstream institutions in general. You said 30, 40 percent of the country. I mean, the entire Republican Party is less than 30 percent of the country. If 70 percent of them believe in the big lie and a much smaller percentage of independents and a minuscule percentage of Democrats, that doesn't get you to 40 percent. Yeah, fair enough. On the other hand, 47 percent of the voters voted for Trump and I don't know, yeah, there's a fair amount of evidence. So let's say, yeah. say 30%, 25%, 30%. That means that in Republican primaries, it's often more than 50%, which means that the nominees you get cater to those people. And, mm-hmm. and again, I come back to this problem. If all the other Republicans who didn't believe the lie then said, well, I'm sorry, I can't vote for a Republican nominee who embraces the big lie, then it would be a manageable problem. Then you would sort of segregate the problem, you know what I mean, among a few members of Congress. But that's not the current situation. And this is where I come back to the responsibility of the more mainstream Republicans and the more mainstream conservative elites, they say their typical reaction is once a Republican nominee gets uh, the nomination who did vote to overturn the election, that's a majority of House Republicans, remember, uh, you know, we still got to support him because he'll vote the right way on the issues we care about and he's not really going to overturn elections after all. And so that is why you have it may only be 25% of the country, but it's a higher percentage of Republican members of Congress, probably. It's a higher percentage of conservative activists, certainly. And it can keep on growing, and that's what's most worrisome. You've been a mainstay of the conservative press, often on the receiving end of liberal snark. Uh, you seem to shrug that off, but now it seems to have become a, a battle of liberal snark on one side and owning the libs on the other. Do you see any way out? I think the way out is to win first and then to reconcile, I guess is the way I would put it. The big lie has to be defeated. Mm -hmm. Then I think taking a look at how social media work and what our regulations Mm -hmm. are for this and how we can have a healthier political process. But at the end of the day, this is now an urgent enough problem that the people who propagate the big lie have to be defeated, which is why it's not enough to say, well, I don't like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but, you know, Kevin McCarthy's not like Marjorie Taylor Greene. He has to tolerate her. She's part of the conference. No. That shows the level of accommodation we've now developed, the level of rationalization, and I think it's very dangerous. Right. Between gerrymandering, the Electoral College, and so forth, the primary system, there'll be a time very soon when the Senate represents 30% of the actual American electorate. So winning is a tall order. How do you win? How do you persuade people? What technique do you or would you use to reach across the chasm in this, you should forgive the expression, national conversation? Well, it is possible to win. And I think the way to do it is the way Biden did it in, in 2020, which is you've got to get some chunk of those Republicans who know better and convince them that they can't tolerate electing a big lie proponent even if they like that big lie proponent's tax policy or views on abortion or whatever, better than the Democrat in a primary. And that's hard work, and it's pretty, you know, retail work. There's no silver bullet for that. We need to persuade people in Florida and Texas to do better than Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott. I mean, they can be Republicans. They're not going to have the same views as people in Massachusetts and New York. We need to figure out ways to try to bring some of those people over. Have you ever changed anyone's mind? I don't talk to average voters much, so I and I always am therefore very uh, hesitant to... Anybody who you disagree with on the matter of the big lie. 
It's not the right way to ask the question, I would say. I mean, all right. I mean, go ahead. The question is how many people who were on the Republican side in 2015 are now vehement in denouncing the big lie? I would say, among intellectual types, journalist types, it's a pretty high number, actually. An awful lot of people who were at the Weekly Standard, some who were at National Review, some who were at the Wall Street Journal, you know, have been pretty forthright in saying this is unacceptable. So I'll answer your question in a different way, because I think it's, it is a good question, but which is why have attempts to persuade been relatively unsuccessful often? I think one reason is this. A lot of us said, oh boy, you're going to pay a price for embracing this, you know, to Republican officials in 2017 or to conservative elites in 2018. You know, everything Trump touches dies. There was a huge amount, especially on the left, I've got to say, of almost triumphalism about how embarrassed they were all going to end up, all these people who were associated with this movement. And you know what? They've done fine. They've done fine. Sarah Sanders lied from the White House podium and she's going to be governor of Arkansas. Our state needs a leader with the courage to do what's right, not what's politically correct or convenient. I took on the media, the radical left and their cancel culture, and I won. The people who paid a price are the people who stood up. You know, Liz Cheney is behind in Wyoming. Kevin McCarthy's not facing a difficult primary challenge. Have you reached out to people who were uh, once firmly across the aisle in the intellectual bubble in which you dwell? I feel like I'm reaching out of my bubble into yours. <laughs> no, absolutely. I spend all my time these days talking to liberals and Democrats and going to conferences for them and publishing some of them at the bulwark. I think that's happened at, at the, honestly, at the intellectual level. I don't think it's happened effectively at, at the popular level, but that partly is just a phenomenon of polarization, social media, and other things which are difficult to overcome. What did you think about Steve Inskeep's interview with former President Trump last week? I don't know if you heard about it or listened to it. Do you think it should have been live? Should it have been done at all? What, what's your view? I think it was, I thought he hit upon, I, my instinct, I haven't thought this through entirely, but my instinct is to say that he did a good job. I mean, he's the leader of the Republican Party. It's kind of important to hear from him, but not to hear from him in a way in which his lies are unchallenged. And I think the fact that Inskeep, in a sense, fact-checked it, and when NPR didn't put it up as quickly as they might, you know, you want to get it up as soon as you can, you know, breaking news. But he, they didn't treat it that way, and they put it up in a way that was responsible and sober and serious. They hit upon something that might be a, a good way of dealing with this kind of problem. And the problem of all of us preaching to the converted? Well, I'm preaching, you know, and making my arguments. I can't really control who listens to them, can I, that much? I mean, people say, you should go on Fox. I mean, I don't want to go on Fox now. I just don't want to be on their air. And I've said no, therefore, to them. Uh, they don't really invite me anymore. But in the early Trump years, there was a little bit of that. Having said that, the organization I'm part of, Defending Democracy Together, we do buy airtime on Fox to advertise messages that are very much anti-big lie. Kevin McCarthy said this in January of a year ago. Why isn't he saying it today? The contradictions, the exposing what's going on, the madness on the right. Does it affect 5, 10, 15% of their viewers? Maybe. And I think it's worth us doing that. But it's a tough call, I think, honestly, for a lot of people. I've had this conversation with many friends. Should I debate this person at a university? Should I contribute to this journal? It's not the easiest thing to know what the right answer is. There is no clear path. I mean, the clear path is to contain the lie and the liars as much as possible and then roll them back and defeat them. So it's like defeating Soviet communism. You don't know exactly what issues might give you more of an opportunity than others. That's one thing I'm struck by. We don't know ahead of time which overreach by MAGA world, which part of the craziness might be just a step too far for 5%, 20% of voters in some state or in some congressional district? Are people going to be put off by the vulgarity, by the grift? So far, not. Not much. But Joe Biden did win in 2020. Yeah, but the Wall Street Journal is making a great deal of effort and much of the press to ensure that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, and we need to make sure it does happen again. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bill Kristol was the former chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle and the founder of the conservative magazine, The Weekly Standard. He's now editor-at-large for The Bulwark. We now move from the bubble of the elites to the turf of the regular voter. You may ask, why not have a Stop the Stealer on the show? Well, the clips we've played earlier this hour may explain why not. 
We're not after a gotcha, a shouting match, or a snicker. And a genuine exchange of ideas isn't possible on this issue. There was no steal. But we were after someone who knows that turf, so we asked Osted Herndon, who covers national politics for the New York Times and regularly visits Trump rallies and similar events. He says he'd rather speak with voters who believe the election myth than with the politicians who foster it. Frankly, I think talking to elected officials gets you a spin. That's only one piece of the puzzle, and I really focus on the other half. Right, but there's also the access issue. I mean, they're not going to answer your calls, are they? Yeah, for a Republican politician right now, if you are someone who really aligns with that kind of Trump ideology, the New York Times doesn't really serve your purpose. Your main voters aren't reading it. And more than that, you're rewarded for taking an active stance against it. You said that you found it easier to speak with voters. Why don't you tell me about your visit to Virginia ahead of the governor's race in October? I went to Virginia for a couple things. You know, there's been much talked about how the Republican nominee there, now the governor, Glenn Youngkin, was kind of towing the line between a Trump Republican and a regular Republican. And when I went to these events, that's not really a line that's real. It's become a litmus test for candidates. They really have to prove themselves to the base. And so while Youngkin did say publicly that he would have voted to certify the election, Sarah gets sent signals to the base to say, hey, you can still trust us. That is what is being communicated in that Trump media ecosystem. So you have a Republican who's then both able to have their cake and eat it too. They can tell media and the elected class that they would not follow Donald Trump down that path of election conspiracy, while at the same time, they're telling the actual voters that they would have. And this is why we wanted to call you to talk about strategy in a way, because you're talking about people who think that they've outsmarted the system. They don't have to believe what they see. The system is a fraud. Everyone in it is a fraud. Your guy is a better fraud than all the other frauds, and he is your guy on your side. How do you interview people like that? In the same way I try to interview all voters, be transparent and honest about what I'm up to. People want to ask about what the article's about. I'll give them the general thoughts about the premise. I'll hear if they think that the premise is wrong and say that that's something that we would love to include in the story. Hey, if your beef with media is that we don't come to places like here and reflect the voices of people like you, I am here. What is the perspective that you think we are missing? Tell me right now. I'll put it in the paper. You are there, a black man from the New York Times. How are you received? You know, I think it's a mixed bag. Certainly, race and blackness comes up. I'm 28. I'm kind of Mm -hmm. visibly like a kid. Mm -hmm. And people bring up age all the time. I mean, (laughs) and there are certain ways that I think being Midwestern, growing up outside of the window of coastal Washington is actually helpful for me at these Mm -hmm. things. And so I think that actually all of those identities come into play. But I got to say, a lot of people ask me about race and Trump rallies, but my race is brought up at liberal events. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've had Democrats talk to me about blackness. Bernie Sanders supporters tried to absolve what they were doing in the civil rights movement (laughs) by telling me what they're doing. So I really think that I try to take the same approach with those voters as I do with everyone, come at them directly, come at them honestly, and cross your fingers. As you've described it, interviewing Trump supporters seems pretty similar to interviewing any political cohort. But are there any differences? Yeah. You cannot assume that the national or mainstream conversation is the topic of discussion there. If you are in that interaction and you don't know what they're talking about, if you don't speak the language they're not going to really want to talk to you. That you should stay a little longer than someone expects. People like when you kind of hang with them for a little bit. I like to find people individually as they're walking up to the rally, as they're getting a concession. I find that people are more willing to talk to you individually than when it's in a group or big setting. I remember asking a woman at that Virginia rally, what is it about Trump supporters that she doesn't think the rest of the country knows Mm -hmm. that she wants to tell them. And what she said was, I really think the election was stolen. When you are there, that is the topic of discussion. The reason why we're talking about Trump at these rallies where Trump was not running is that it was your observation that he was running, in a sense. (laughs) You cannot exist as a Republican without constantly thinking, what does Donald Trump do or think about this? In my view, that still means that he is the leader of that party and cannot be ignored. 
private citizens can still have power, and he has a lot of it. I was just surprised in the piece that, at least in the group that you were reporting on there, it was much more about Trump than it was about the candidate Youngkin. You know, the phrase used to be that all politics was local. We are seeing a politics that's increasingly national, and Donald Trump is the center of that. And so for these people at this rally, they saw Virginia as the first step to reclaiming a country that they think has an illegitimate president. This was the first step in a larger process, not the end. You batted me away a little bit before when I was talking about you being in this group in which there's a great concern that their country is being taken from them. And though you certainly, I'm sure, have had awkward and microaggressive moments with white liberals, I wondered whether the experience was different. Oh, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't downplay it. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to give you the caveats before I actually answer you. Mm-hmm. I can tell so many stories about micro and macro aggression, but I worry about people feeling a little too good about themselves, Right. that it's those type of people and not others. (laughs) So having said that, I was in Texas on the day Biden was announced and the man called black protesters the N-word. I was in Arizona where someone called me and Barack Obama an N-word in Arizona at Trump Fest. A person put a gun on the table and said that he planned to do violence if Donald Trump did not win the election. This was someone who actually ended up going to the Capitol mm. on the 6th. I was kicked out of a bar in Pennsylvania. You know, I could tell a lot of those stories when I was writing about crime in Boston, too. People saying a lot of wild stuff or kicking me out of places. Often I'm doing work that inserts yourself into really traumatic moments for people and really high-intensity moments. It's actually kind of logical to be really skeptical of someone showing up out of the random and asking you to tell all your political thoughts or stepping into the worst day of your life and asking you to tell millions of people about it. I think they should talk to me, and I'm going to make the case of them and why they should. But I respect people's no's, too. There's been a lot of pearl clutching about giving a platform to the big lie. Do you think it's important to interview people who espouse those views? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the core of really understanding how politics is working right now. But it doesn't tell you how it works. It just tells you that it did work. I'm making a smaller distinction in that. People thinking that politics is a debate class that only deals with what is true has actually stopped people from seeing the spread of certain political movements in the country over the last five to 10 years. And so I think if there was, we had a media ecosystem that understood how birtherism was more widespread than we ever admitted, then we would have understood the 2016 election and the 2016 Republican primary a lot more. I really think that in the current tech environment, in the media environment, and how politics is working, you can't run from this. That does not make it true, and you need to know in your stories that it's not true. You need to find ways to do it responsibly, but I don't think that ignoring it's an option. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Asted W. Herndon is a reporter covering national politics for The New York Times. Coming up, the truth sandwich. Can there ever be enough of them? This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Now on to the truth sandwich. Some years back, this was the brainchild of linguist and cognitive scientist George Lakoff. Research had shown that when people heard a lie being refuted, they were actually more likely to remember the lie than the truth. So he concocted the truth sandwich as a means whereby journalists could address lies without inadvertently reinforcing them. 
Morning Edition's Steve Inskeep used the sandwich in presenting the Trump interview. Prior to the interview, he presented the truth, followed by Trump, followed again by the truth. The truth sandwich won't leave listeners with the lie. A reporter's lifeline. But even so, in my phone interview with Lakoff, he was all too aware of its limitations. For instance, it can't defeat profound distrust. No, the sandwich can't solve that problem. It solves the immediate problem. It can't solve the larger problem. But you have to have lots of sandwiches to solve that. And you have to be on it constantly. People have done that. It doesn't seem, judging from polling on this issue, that presenting the evidence matters particularly. Let me get under this a little bit. In a recent edition of your Substack column, FrameLab, you talked about a Republican framing of the immigration issue, specifically the GOP pressuring Vice President Harris to visit the southern border. You wrote... The border visit was simply a Republican frame. The vice president had to visit the border or else she was running away from the border issue because conservatives said so. The press swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. In the end, the VP had no choice but to comply. She went to the border where nothing was accomplished and where her choice of sites, El Paso, only inspired a new stream of criticism from anti-immigrant conservatives. You wrote, remember, there is usually no way to win when you accept the opposition's frame. Is there some stratagem to outsmart the ubiquity of the big lie? The answer is to point out that they're framing it that way. That's only your way of framing the issue. But given the evidence we have, namely so-and-so, it appears to be that the accurate way to frame this issue is, then you say it. It just doesn't seem to make a dent on the true believers. It won't make a dent on the true believer. The question is, who is your audience and who is being interviewed? Are you going to interview only the liar or are you going to have other persons who tell the truth in addition to the liar? For that, you need a trusted reporter. You may need pictures of it. You may need pictures of some people saying it. You may need videos, but you need some background that says, here's the truth we start from. Here's the truth we start from. You've got to have that. There are a lot of terms floating around right now in our vocabulary. Vaccines, critical race theory, election fraud. In different precincts, they signify very different things, real and imagined. How do we approach that misalignment when the very words we use tell stories about us that we may not intend? Take critical race theory. Most people don't know what critical race theory is. You need to say what critical race theory says, and you need to be able to say it in a sentence or two. You have to practice it. Stand in front of the mirror and practice. The same with vaccines. Vaccines, which have proved to keep people out of the hospital when they are exposed to variants of the coronavirus, or election fraud which has been proven to be non-existent in uh, recent elections. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to have those descriptors all the time. So-called election fraud, you can always add so-called. Any stratagems about how to communicate to and about propagators of the big lie, both with those voters who sincerely believe it and with those who, judging from past statements, only say they do, like many in Congress? You probably can. You're not going to convert the true believers. What you can do sometimes, if there is a, a commentator from Fox News who has said the truth, you can quote him, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's hard. But you do or don't think that we should talk to people who believe a lie, even if they represent upwards of a quarter or more of the U.S. population. My basic estimate is something like 37%, you know, who believe the lie. And what you have to do is have, I'll give a short list of generally widespread trusted sources, and you say it, say the truth. But they may not trust any of those sources. One kind of counterintuitive 
observation you've made in the past is that all politics is moral. And we know that you can influence people if you make them the hero of their own story. Is there any way to frame the issue that encompasses a shared morality? Or is that too tall an order? Too tall an order. Uh, Usually, you have different views of what constitutes right and wrong. Hmm. That's the problem. You have written about something you call the the father style of morality or moral judgments. Strict father morality. The strict father is somebody who says, I know right from wrong, period. It's a very patriarchal set of values. It's worse than patriarchal. (laughs) You know, it is one of these things that does not allow what I call empathy. It says you have your view what others should be like, period. And the strict father model of parenting is one that values strict discipline, particularly by the father. Children learn through reward and punishment that evil is all around us, constantly tempting us, you wrote, and the primary vices are those that dissolve self-discipline. And part of that is having empathy. You don't Mm -hmm. get much empathy out of Republicans. You know, you're not going to get Mitch McConnell empathizing with many people. (laughs) So this seems like a big tangent, and maybe it is, but I'm trying to get back to this notion of the disciplined belief in the big lie in the face of all the evidence to the contrary, which is often stated. All the audits, all the recounts, all the winning Republicans on ballots where Trump lost. You know, even something as obvious as that. I just was mm-hmm. hoping that you could, in some sort of sage-like fashion, offer a technique for dealing with it beyond the truth sandwich that would work. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, people who have those beliefs and who have that view of what right and wrong is, it's very deep. That's who they are. You're not going to change them. That is a lost cause. Other things are not a lost cause. Appealing to other people who are open to this is not a lost cause at all. But you have to use your truth sandwiches. Ah, but are there too many lies for the truth sandwich to address? True. There are so many lies that you can't overcome those with just a truth sandwich. That isn't going to work. You have to know the context where it will work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> George, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. George Lakoff is an American linguist, cognitive scientist, and author of Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. And he's also co-creator with Gil Duran of the podcast and newsletter Frame Lab. Yep, that's the show. On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Rebecca Clark Callender, and Eli Cohen, with help from Aki Camargo. Xander Ellen writes our fabulous newsletter. Go to our website, onthemedia.org, to subscribe, and you'll be entered to win OTM merch. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Andrew Dunn and Andrew Nerviano. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.